Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Dane Anderson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Vice Presidents and Research Directors Ashutosh Sharma and Michael Barnes to discuss Forrester's 2023 predictions for the Asia-Pacific region. Welcome both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Dane. Thanks for inviting me. So context is everything, as per usual, and in your predictions report, it states that the region has mostly avoided the rising inflation and recession threats that have plagued major economies all over the world. Can you just share why you think that is and will that continue in 2023? Sure. I mean, to begin with, um, the region is somewhat removed from the impact of crisis that we're seeing in Europe and has followed a somewhat independent path when it comes to how to control the inflationary and recessionary trends. And even if you go back further, um, the the way the COVID-related economic fallout happened here is a little bit different because the region followed a loser monetary policy followed by you know most of the countries in the region and that has helped economies largely avoid some of these threats that we are facing seeing in in Europe and uh, North America this however is set to change you know we are already seeing the impact of global phenomenon uh, coming to the doorsteps of the region the rising interest rates for example in in US has made the capital flow out of the region and uh, back to the US uh, that's kind of raising the USD and starting to hurt the import. At the same time, we are also seeing weakening of external demand environment for the region. So it is safe to say that 2023 will be more difficult as uh, this fallout from the from the global economic downturn spreads. And this is why we are seeing uh, the region will become even more regionally focused in its trade and strategies. And if you look at the digital adapt- adoption, owing to the low level of digitization, we are seeing an accelerated investments in tech. Both the companies and the governments will speed up adoption of tech-led solutions to improve the lives of citizens and the customers. And and this is happening in the backdrop of rapidly evolving customer expectations. So it'll be kind of a continuing struggle and uh, struggle to stay ahead of these rising customer expectations for both. On this point of the economy sort of becoming more regionally focused as opposed to having this dependence on the West, which is uh, how we've seen this dynamic in the past, we've made a prediction on this. Can you share a little bit more background on what that prediction is? Yeah, uh, we are predicting that in uh, 2023, the cross-border commerce in the region will increase by 20%. And it's based on uh, certain underlying trends. Uh, To begin with, uh, the region is working to make the trade uh, easier between the countries in the region. The the very recent, uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, which which came into effect in uh, November 2020th, but uh, which was signed in rather November 2020th and has come in effect uh, fairly recently, uh, will give a cross-border commerce for the boost by removing tariffs and easing barriers and restrictions to regional trade for small and medium-sized businesses. And that's a big deal because there are 15 countries which are there as part of that. Right now, India is not part of it, but India, uh, which is one of the major economies on, on in the region, has an option to join uh, it at some point in the future. And in parallel uh, to this agreement, India, China, and some of the other Southeast Asian nations are embracing modern payment networks 
that uh, are threatening the way the cross-border payments have happened in the past using SWIFT and uh, other systems. Uh, India, for example, has built this unified payment interface originally to solve for domestic payment, but it is rolling it out for cross-border payments on a country-by-country -country basis. So besides its smaller neighbors such as Bhutan, Nepal, and Bangladesh, it has also entered into a similar partnership with Singapore and Japan, and not to mention other countries outside the region such as Middle East and Europe. Likewise, China has a cross-border interbank payment system, which allows uh, transaction in remnibis, and it, that's also growing fairly rapidly. So if you combine these trends with the fact that the region, especially Southeast Asia, has a very high smartphone ownership, very deep internet penetration, more than 90%, and then the digital payment is growing fairly rapidly, it gives us the confidence to say that the in-border, in-region, um, uh, cross-border payments is uh, certainly growing to grow fairly rapidly in the coming days. Yeah, it's a Good point, Ashutosh. I mean, there's a couple of trends to think about here, right? I mean, one is the natural response to uh, the the lockdowns and the uh, the disruption to supply chains in lockdowns. Uh, countries are forced to be have been forced to be more self-sufficient, right? And that's expanded into regional um, sufficiency as well. Um, there's that. There's certainly the continued growing uh, power and assertiveness of countries in region uh, looking for a bit more, uh, let's say, uh, control, uh, self-determination about things like cross-border payments. And then there's the simple fact that SWIFT is what, 50 years old? It's old antiquated technology, and that's the basis for cross-border payments now. So of course, technology is going to drive some innovation. Um, we've seen it in the consumer banking space with access to APIs, which translates to tools like Venmo, which become just an absolute given based on better, more uh, modern technology. The biggest issue is corporate banking is much more complex. So there isn't quite the equivalent uh, of an API in the commercial banking world, but that's where um, some of the initiatives, Ashutosh, you mentioned, that's exactly what they're targeting. Uh, so it's, it's really just a natural progression of technology innovation that is, I think, reinforcing some of the, the, the um, geopolitical regional trends that we've been seeing towards increased power and kind of self-determination. And, and probably the West looking elsewhere, right? So with an America First agenda for the states and other countries, Asia is uh, filling that void with its own trade agreements that, um, that the West has turned away from. So that's another driving force here on this trend. Uh, I think. What, what is the what is the guidance? So for this trend, what does it mean? What, what do our clients need to do uh, when they factor this prediction? Yeah, the guidance here would be that if you are a retailer or a bank or any corporation which is looking to operate in the region, then you should better invest in solutions that can integrate with with the regional uh, region systems, especially the payment networks, which are purpose built for the region and are very common and prevalent here. So it will not only be easier for you to accept payment, but it will be easier for your customers uh, to buy from you. And that's going to be a big deal for anyone who's here. So sort of moving the conversation to another prediction, one of the things that we had mentioned earlier in the episode was that firms will continue to struggle keeping pace with customer expectations, right? And so one of the areas that will manifest is in omni-channel programs. So can you explain what what you're predicting in this space for 23? 
Yeah, sure, Jen. So, I mean, the the prediction is that 80% or 8 in 10 um, omni-channel initiatives will fail. Um, now, to, to, to validate that, we have to put some context around it, right? So you can think about it kind of from three phases, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown, most firms, certainly in region, uh, and it varies a bit by country, but it's safe to say that most organizations, most brands were really bad at omni-channel. In fact, it wasn't omni-channel at all. What they did was multi-channel engagement, by which I mean brands would have multiple channels that their customers could use to engage with them. But those channels were, to a very large extent, isolated. There wasn't a lot of consistency um, or sharing of insight across those. Now, a true omni-channel strategy, just to contrast, is one where the brand says, from the customer's standpoint, the customer can engage with that brand in whatever means is most convenient to them. It's kind of the definition of an outside-in strategy. That only works if those channels are sharing information about the customer. So the context is clear. So me as a customer, I can engage in whatever manner is most effective. That could be a mix of physical, digital, anything in between. Um, and that's the challenge. So what happened was lockdown hits, brands go to full digital because of course there is no physical engagement. And we get a couple of years of strong virtual digital engagement. A lot of brands did that really well and used it as an opportunity to innovate, which was great. But now we're post lockdown, they're reverting back to investing in some of those physical channels they never learned the lesson that the channels need to be integrated. So it's almost a massive shift from extreme, all virtual, back to not necessarily extreme, all physical, but distinct. So it's back to multi-channel. And that kind of in a nutshell is why we say omni-channel will fail because essentially most brands aren't actually delivering omni-channel as viewed from the customer's perspective. And just to add to that, there's a latent demand or the desire of the customers to go back to physical channels as well which wasn't understood by the by the brands as much if you attend any of the in-person events or any of the you know shopping malls the number of uh, people who are thronging to these places is uh, unprecedented and that sort of shows that people crave for physical interaction as much as they crave for for the digital interaction so while we did see the initial jump um, uh, again back to the physical channels but to Michael's point companies need to figure out how do they bring the two together in a much more seamless manner because the expectations that were built during the pandemic as to how digital should work people carry that to the physical environment as well and they want they don't want to see two disjointed experience in those spaces. Yeah, exactly right. And so, I mean, Forrest's recommendation there is to uh, to to design, understand, and, and implement an experience architecture. And the key focus there is the ability to not only understand who your customers are, what their expectations are across different points in the customer's journey, but then map that journey and those expectations to the most likely, most appropriate channel whether that's virtual or digital, and be able to share the information, the insights, ultimately the data across those channels to provide context, right? To your point, Ashutosh, you know, folks want physical engagement, 
but they don't want to have to repeat themselves. They don't want to feel like they're a brand new customer every time they engage with a brand. They want the best of both worlds and they have a right to expect it. And I think that's the key that brands um, have unfortunately kind of forgotten. Thanks for those insights. I think that one's quite clear. I think we can move on to the next one. And one of the more provocative predictions in the report is that at least 50 APAC firms will be penalized over performative ESG actions. So maybe let's explain what performative ESG actions are, and let's explain a little bit more about why we made this prediction and what we think is going to happen. Yeah. And look, I'll double down on the prediction. I'll get into kind of describing what the heck we're talking about, but it's worth mentioning as well the uh, the global prediction along these lines, which is that at least 10 companies, 10 Fortune Global 200 companies uh, will be fined 5 million US or more for uh, ESG, basically for greenwashing. Uh, and so I kind of answered the question there, what is performative ESG action? Well, Essentially, it's it's greenwashing or or the equivalent, um, but greenwashing is where the fines are happening, primarily because there are regulations around you know what you can actually do uh, from an advertising standpoint, from a communication standpoint. So you know, as an example, um, 2021, the European Commission did a review of brands' websites. What they found was 50%, so half of the green claims made by brands in the European Union had no evidence whatsoever to support them. There was no ability really for their customers to validate these claims they're making. Um, now, you know, not all brands are purposely uh, engaging in greenwashing. You know, many have good intents, but there's a level of rigor required there, right? There's a level of proof uh, required. And this is the difference between performative, where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe overstating capabilities as opposed to reflecting action and being authentic. And again, I, I feel like in the, the major theme in this entire prediction is, is kind of pre and post pandemic. But what we've learned among many things is that as individuals, as customers, we are more purpose-led, we're more values-driven post-pandemic. Um, and one of the ways that manifests itself is a um, less tolerance for um, uh, unsubstantiated claims. I could use maybe another term, but I'll stick with, with unsubstantiated claims there. Uh, and that has an impact, right, on brand value, certainly, but even on, uh, on potential fines. And this is the numbers that we're talking about. So ASIC, uh, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, is now investigating firms in Australia, uh, particularly financial services firms, uh, because they have regulatory guidelines in terms of what they can classify as green investments, for instance, as green products. Um, the extreme example is DWS, the asset management uh, arm of Deutsche Bank. Um, back in, what was it? It was in June. The CEO was forced to resign because DWS was overstating the green credentials of their products. And that involved actual raiding of their headquarters by German police. And just to add to that, I want to drive the distinction here that we are not talking about simple compliance. You know, we have always had regulations in place uh, for some of the uh, ESG related, uh, you know, compliance requirements and companies were already meeting them. What we are talking about here is companies going 
above and beyond and making claims of doing things above and beyond which are actually not happening and reflecting it in their marketing campaigns which uh, kind of sets the wrong sends the wrong message to the customers at large about their uh, their value consciousness around these so that's something we are we're seeing that we will see uh, a lot of at the same time penalizing by the different regulators across the region uh, on on those actions yeah and, and and look the reality is um you know i think most folks want to do the right thing they're just under extreme pressure to respond to expectations uh for greener products right for more sustainable initiatives and the truth is a lot of organizations don't really have a good handle on where to begin um, they're not sure what they should be doing, how fast to be doing it. They have other business priorities that impact how much they can devote resource-wise. So the challenge is ensuring that when it comes to corporate communications, to outbound messaging, to marketing related to green activities, that it's authentic. Simple as that, that it reflects reality for the organization, that you avoid consciously or subconsciously overstating what you're doing because you'll get called out on it. Um, and I do have an example that I'd be happy to share if we have time from outside environmental sustainability because it's, um, you know, it's not just about fines, right? Think about it in terms of reputation. So earlier this year, uh, my colleague, Sam Higgins, uh, posted a blog on, it was, it was right after International Women's Day. And um, so, you know, not surprisingly, there were a lot of brands going on social media promoting uh, International Women's Day and, you know, a bit of self-congratulatory posts related to their brand, basically linking their brand to, um, to, to International Women's Day. Um, so a couple of folks in the UK created a bot that linked uh, these congratulatory Twitter feeds or Twitter messages with open data from the UK government on gender pay gap by company because that data needs to be reported and it's readily available and basically what they did was shame the brands who were um you know basically promoting themselves as part of international's women's day but weren't actually following through in their own actions now it's not about them achieving pay equality immediately it's just about ensuring that there isn't that disconnect, right? The clear disconnect between messages, outbound marketing, uh, and reality, and that there's efforts being made to close that gap. And that's what they were calling out. And it had a negative brand impact. It was embarrassing for a lot of brands, and rightfully so. Thank you for that uh, background. And, and Michael, I think you've mentioned that the guidance that we've recommended is that uh, our clients act with authenticity and transparency. But if something should go wrong, what should they do? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a great question. I guess I would say the, you know, the first thing, things will go wrong, right? Because the lack of understanding around ESG and the demands for action to be taken and for that to be uh, publicized. But so when mistakes happen, the key is to own up to it. It's to be open. It's to act with empathy uh, and have, have the courage to own up, to fess up, and to do better. Um, and the way you do better is by providing evidence of what you're doing. So match your words to your actions. Actually walk the walk uh, and ensure that your communication doesn't get too far ahead of your walking pace. <laughs> Just continue that analogy. So to take us home, 
Are there any other trends that APAC firms should get ahead of in the in the coming year? Certainly a broad question, but worth uh, picking your brains on this one. Sure. I mean, uh, there's another prediction which kind of goes back to what I started off with around region going a little bit more self-sufficient around the technology adoption. Um, and we are going to see uh, that a lot of in-region digital industrial platform adoption will happen. And primarily in the manufacturing, uh, this is because uh, when you look at the APAC across different manufacturing subsectors, you know, be it construction, utilities, and other industrial firms, uh, they are already adopting cloud fairly aggressively. Now that's going to morph into them adopting digital industrial platforms, which can, which enable them to um, you know, uh, connect and analyze the industrial data, bridging the physical and the digital world that exists around them. So that's something we're going to see in in, uh, in, ne- in next 12 months. Yeah. So so from my end, Jen, I guess the one that I would mention, I'll actually go back to a global prediction um, from for tech leaders. And uh, that prediction is around uh, really the emphasis for organizations from an investment standpoint. And I think this applies well beyond tech leaders. This is for business leaders in general. Given what Ashutosh and I talked about, the geopolitical uh, tensions, the economic headwinds, um, some of the other um, concerns that we're seeing, you know, if you look about, if you look at where organizations are investing, you know, the definition of a future fit organization, one that is able to support a customer obsessed approach. Some of the things we talked about, they focus on three key areas, uh, the ability to be adaptive, the ability to be creative and the ability to be resilient. Now, for the past couple of years, the primary focus for organizations has been on on creativity, in particular, the ability to understand customer needs and deliver um, capabilities, services, products, primarily digitally, that actually respond to those. So creating differentiation through their initiatives through via customer insights. What we see over the next 12 and probably beyond, but certainly for 2023 is a shift from creativity to resiliency. In fact, our prediction is that 80% of organizations will shift their primary focus from that creative uh, emphasis to resiliency. And I would consider resiliency from two perspectives. One is really from a data standpoint, the ability to access data uh, and transform that into insights, in particular, predictive insights for things like supply chain visibility, uh, as an example. Um, But that's only half the equation. That's the technology side of things. The other half is the organizational uh, capacity to respond to those insights. Right. And to to make changes necessary, even if they're painful, in order to continue delivering on your brand promise, regardless of the situation, whether it's geopolitical issues, economic issues, severe weather issues, whatever it may be. Um, that's the, the really the core, I'd say, business priority for certainly for 2023, if not beyond. Great insights. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us here. Thanks, folks. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.